So part of getting older is not just needing glasses, but forgetting them. So, no, sorry, I'll, I'll squint. We'll, we'll get through it. Thinking back, I alluded to this already, thinking back to events over the last year, my, my guess is that no few of us in this room would like a do-over. You just kind of, hey, can we go back, restart, reboot, that sort of thing. Whether you're, <clears throat> you're, um, you cast your eye to the realm of politics or social media or to pop culture or to athletics uh, or, or just if we look in the mirror, uh, it's fairly certain most of us, to the degree that we are honest, would say that we would like a fresh start. So that's why, of course, this time of year we... Much is said, and understandably so, rightly so, uh, in terms of resolutions um, for this upcoming new year. Typically, we, of course, we want to weigh less, uh, we want to read more, we want to start a new project, we want to finish an old project, uh, we want to do it better, do it new, do it right, certainly better than before. And, and all of that is, is, is fine. I'm not there's anything wrong with that, of course. But there is something that needs to be injected into all of that. For all of our resolutions and our resolve in those resolutions, none of that ever goes far enough. It never goes uh, deep enough. Something that needs to be injected into all this. We are settling for far too little. We are settling for far too little. We're, we're, just, we're, we're thinking in terms about things we can do or not do, a resolve, a resolution, when the Lord is holding out to us renewal. Renewal. Something that cannot come by resolve. He is offering us renewal, being made new daily, by the hour, being made new. And that is so much better than the best of our New Year's resolutions. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is certainly one of the larger, longer books in the Old Testament. If you're trying to find that, I would say just open your Bible up to the middle. That's the Psalms. And head a few books to the right, and you'll hit a big one called Isaiah. And Isaiah 1 is where we are, and we're going to hone in on verses 18 through 20, this amazing promise that the prophet Isaiah is putting forward, really the Lord through the prophet Isaiah is putting forward to us. We're going to hone in on verses 18 through 20, but we're going to start at verse 1. Start at verse 1 and read on through uh, verse 20. So uh, hear now God's word. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand." Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. 
Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this past Advent season. And thank you now for the traditional 12 days of Christmas. Uh, The celebration coming after the culmination and the waiting, the longing, the hopes and fears of all the years met in you that night in your coming as us for us to make you your own. Ah, We uh, see as the aftershocks of that, the repercussions of that, the significance of all of that. Here in Isaiah, this invitation, but more than that, a pleading, a pleading that we would hear and lay hold of this Christ, this Messiah, and his finished work on our behalf and live out of that joyfully. All we are, all we do. Come, come, you say. Oh, would you help us to do that? Listen. Listen, you say, hear, heed. Oh, would you help us that we would know the joy of which Isaiah speaks here, the release, the relief, that it can be ours this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. 
Few voices say Christmas like Bing Crosby. And of course, a few Bing Crosby songs are as beloved as White Christmas. Uh, it is the best-selling single of all time, having sold over, well over, 50 million copies. It was released during the early months of World War II. Soldiers had been shipped out uh, away from home, longing for the familiar sights and sounds and smells of, of the holidays, and this really, it, it took off. The song took off. It was an immediate success from the very start, and of course, still today, uh, still today, there's a, something of a nostalgic pull of this song, of its chords, of its lyrics, upon our hearts. But it is quite likely there may well be more to its pull, more to its endurance than just nostalgia, something deeper, something that perhaps we, we actually don't even realize, aren't even quite able to identify, something that we sense but don't actually understand. And Isaiah is alluding to it in verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Isaiah is promising the whitest of all white Christmases. Now, what is snow? What is snow from a, a biblical perspective? The, the references are very few in the Bible, which of course tells us something, that it's relatively rare in the, in the Near East, was then and, and is still today, known mostly, mostly just by the sight of it, uh, looking out over the horizon at the distant mountaintops on a clear day, Herman and, and others. Snow then is, is not something really so much experienced by the biblical writers, but it is a symbol, a symbol for two things. Now, one is obvious, and the second may not be as obvious, but it is equally as important. The first being, of course, that, that snow is a symbol. It's whiteness pointing to purity. Well, that's obvious, isn't it? And you see it very clear, very just plain as day right here in this text. But there's something else, and, the second, and that's the second thing, and that has not just to do with its purity, but its source. Where does snow come from? Ultimately, from a biblical perspective, the right, true perspective, snow comes from God. Snow comes from God. He controls the forces of nature and sends it, whether it be rain or fog, sleet, hail, snow, when, how, where he wills. So bring these two things together. He is the Lord of the snow. He alone, he alone can bring new beginnings. He is the one who brings the whiteness, the purity, the cleansing, and he alone can do that. He alone is the source of that. He alone is behind that, orchestrating that. All that's to say, if he alone is the one who can make new beginnings, if we're to begin again, to seek a new beginning, any of us here this morning, we have to look to him. If he alone is the source of new beginnings, of a renewal of any kind, we have to look to him. We have to look and, and, and understand just what is it that he is promising? What is it that he is pleading with us, urging us to, to come to him and, and seek? Well, there's two things here. You can see it there in your outline. Two parts. It's very, very simple. 
One is harder and one is easier, but you have to take the first one first. The first being to hear the charges. To hear the charges. And then secondly, to believe the gospel. To believe the good news. To, to reckon and, and grapple with the bad news. So that you are ready then, we are ready then, to embrace, not just grapple with, but to embrace and live out of the good news. Let's look at these, these two things in, in turn. So first, hearing the charges. Thinking about verse 18. We need to know that indeed our sins are like scarlet in his sight. Maybe not in ours, but in where it matters, in his. We need to know that our sins are like scarlet. We need to grapple with the fact that they are red like crimson. We need to face this, to hear this, to own it. How do we do that? Well, it helps if we just kind of follow along with where Isaiah is taking us here. Isaiah, if you just start there in verse 2 and just move on through uh, what we were just reading a moment ago, he summons. You notice this? He summons. It's like a courtroom setting. And he summons creation as a witness to his people. Look. Look what they've done. Look how they have responded to me. Just, I'll just read verse, verse 2. Just give you a sampling of some. I'm not reading all of it all over again. But hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. So all of Israel's rich history up to this point is summarized in two points. I have reared you, and you have rebelled. And that's the Lord's summary of his relationship with his people. I have reared you and you have rebelled. Despite all of your privilege, despite all that you have, despite all that you are to me, you have thrown all that away and turned away from me and alienated yourself from me, from me. Verse 4, again, I'm just kind of jumping around here, give you some sampling. Ah, sinful nation of people laden with iniquity, Offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. He's talking about his own people, his beloved people, Israel. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are, his own people, utterly estranged. Strong language here, sobering language here. So this charge of rebellion describing a, a state of estrangement and with, mixed in with all of that, just this rampant foolishness. On, on their part. You see verses 5 through 8. I'm not going to read that again, but verses 5 through 8 where Isaiah is describing a person with their, their body just utterly beaten to a pulp and, and a landscape just ravaged, just, uh, there's just nothing left, just, you know, dry stalks and smoke, ash. The idea being that sin is not just unreasonable, but unreasoning. There's a, there's a madness to sin. There's an insanity to sin, as the Lord is, is saying here through the prophet Isaiah. And, and we know that. We know that. It's not just of the people that we look at, but our own hearts, our own lives. We live for and chase after fleeting comforts and finite things. We are too much, too often ruled by our desires and tyrannized by our disappointments in the chasing after those desires. 
We are made for relationship with the one who made us. And yet, we live as though we can be owners and lords ourselves, kings and masters, queens, masters. It's madness. We live as though it's a different universe. There's one universe. There's only one, one cosmos. And we live as though it's made according to our rules instead of, instead of his. It's a madness. It's an insanity uh, to that. It's an unreasoning to that. Well, and that's what Isaiah is trying to convey here. So uh, creation is summoned, but it's not just that. The people are summoned. So now you've got the witness and now you've got the defendant put in the dock. What have you to say for yourself? Verse 10, again, a sampling. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Some of you may know that Sodom and Gomorrah, of course, are associated with the most flagrant bottoming out of transgression, iniquity, and sin, right? It's it's the lowest threshold of rebellion against God, Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord himself is speaking to his people, calling them. Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking now about you. You. Why? A sham religion. All show and no substance. You see it in verses 10 through 17. I'll just, you know, verse 11, just as a sampling. What to you is the multitude of, what, excuse me, what to me, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. So understand that all of those are reflections of things and, and uh, part of things that he commanded them, part of God-ordained worship that done right with a pure heart, a thankful heart, a grateful heart unto him, was immensely pleasing in his sight. But now he's saying, oh no, it's unbearable to me. It's absolutely abhorrent to me. Why? It's disconnected from reality. No concern, really, for God, except what we can get out of him, No concern for God, no concern for holiness, no concern for righteousness, just ourselves. A sham religion disconnected from reality, an empty formalism just going through the motions, and worse, if if you can possibly say worse, in their hearts, the people of God were really just looking to see what they could get out of God. Really just looking to see what they could get. It's, it's really what most any child is doing to Santa Claus. Right? Just think about it. Let's, let's, let's talk about the psychology of, Santa, of, of the, the child with Santa Claus for a moment here. Okay? Don't worry, parents. I'm not going to go too far. That's what I'm going to say. But there's rarely in the mind and heart of the child any interest in knowing Santa. Any concern for the jolly old elf. When you read the letters, what do you see? I'm immensely concerned with your well-being. 
They're low-fat cookies this year. In fact, it's just veggies, carrots, celery, water, no nog. No, no. It's all a list of wishes and wants. Christmas joy held hostage by demands. Right? Are we any different? Are we really any different in the way we engage with the living God? With our list of wishes and demands and a lack of concern for the relationship we have with him. It's not about him. It's not about us. It's about us and us, me. God's people, why it has to begin here. They were not ready for the renewal, not ready to be made new until they heard these charges, until they grappled with the state of their hearts. It had to begin there. It has to begin there with us. Isaiah 1 is about us. We may not want to hear that, may not want to grapple with that, may not want to own that, but Isaiah 1 is about us. So whether we, want to, whether we need to begin for the first time this morning or begin again for the umpteenth time this morning, we have to see how we have too, in every way that they had, turned away from the living God in our self-righteousness, in our self-centeredness, in our self-dependency, and our self-directedness, just put it this way, the Lord, were he to choose, could quite justifiably call creation as witness against us. He would be utterly just in doing so, calling creation in his witness in the court as us, against us. And in a sense, just stretching this way, way out now, In a sense, that's what we need. We need to have the disease revealed. We need to have our sin exposed. We need to have the veneer stripped away. We need to see, as Jesus so pointedly takes us in the Sermon on the Mount, we need to see the hate that lingers down deep in the crevices of our hearts and the lust, and the pride. We need to see that, to own that, to grapple with that. We need to to, to know the way that we don't want to know God, that we just want the stuff and what we can get out of him. Think just as an example. Let's think with how that shows itself in our suffering. And whatever that, you know, that is, the experience of suffering, whatever you're going through now or whatever you have before, and how this, what I can get out of God, shows itself in that experience. In the depths of our being, typically, this is how we respond. I don't want the peace you promise. I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in the maturing of character that you say can come through this valley of suffering. That's not really what I want. I don't want intimacy with you, and frankly, I don't care about your will being done on earth or anywhere else. I just want this to be done. Right? 
I just want this to be done and over. That's our chief interest. And our hearts are exposed there of what we really want and who we're living for ourselves. To begin again, we have to look to the Lord. We have to look to the Lord because He alone makes these new beginnings and guides us in that direction. So we begin with hearing the charges. We dare not stop there. That's at best half this. We begin at hearing the charges. We move to hearing the gospel. So again, verse 18. We can't, you know, we could really just spend this hour together just reading verse 18 again and again and again. You know, just till it finally sunk in. <laughs> just till we actually believed what he was is saying here to us. Verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. What a contrast this is, the scarlet and the snow, the red and the wool. And it pulls, doesn't it pull upon your heart a longing that this would be your experience and you would live out of this and know more of this more richly? Well, how how does it become true for us? By our repenting, by our repenting of our sins, seeing it for what it is, as destructive, as madness, alluded to that earlier, as fullness, as hurtful, and not just hurtful to us, but to the Lord. There's a relational dynamic here. Not just hurtful to us, so not just remorse, oh, dang it, I got caught. But repentance means grappling with how we have hurt him. And you see that even in Isaiah 1. You go back to verse 2, paraphrasing something of that, and he's saying, oh, my children, of all people, you, you, you hear the pain, the pain of the Lord's heart here. And then when you skip down to, to verse 4, and it begins at least with the, the ESV, I think the NIV as well, ah, you know, A-H, ah, sin, that's a cry of, of, of hurt, the bruising of a heart. His heart. So turning, turning, seeing it for what it is, grieving over that, and turning, turning it from all of that to him. Verses 16 and 17 speaks to this. Notice all the action verbs here. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause, turn turn up. Don't in any way get confused here, thinking that this is works-based, merit-based, do this, and then he'll love you. No, this is simply part of the turning. You're turning from those things to him. C.S. Lewis captures this beautifully in a passage from Mere Christianity. Let me read this to you. Now, what was the sort of hole man had got himself into? He had tried to set up his own to behave as if he belonged to himself. In other words, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. 
laying down your arms, surrendering, saying you were sorry, realizing that you've been on the wrong track and getting ready to start life over again from the ground floor, this is the only way out of a hole. This process of surrender, this movement, full speed astern, is what Christians call repentance. Now, repentance is no fun at all. It is something much harder than merely eating humble pie. It means unlearning all the self-conceit and self-will that we've been training ourselves into for thousands of years. It means killing part of yourself, undergoing a kind of death. Remember, this repentance, this willing submission to humiliation and a kind of death, is not something God demands of you before he will take you back, and which he could let you off of if he chose. It is simply a description of what going back to him is like. If you ask God to take you back without it, you're really asking him to let you go back without going back. It cannot happen. Lewis is dead on right there. Repenting of our sin. Now, having heard that, having heard that, we are then to trust in the finished work of the Son. Repenting of our sin, we are then to trust in the finished work of the Son. And it's hinted at, that's actually hinted at here in chapter 1. You may remember back earlier in verse 6, there was mention of bruises and sores and the raw wounds, beaten beyond a pulp, what you've undergone, what you've brought unto yourself. That image comes up again later up in Isaiah in a text that we often read at a different time of the Christian calendar, not Christmas, but Good Friday. Let's go to Isaiah 53, so you can see what I'm talking about. Isaiah 53. Striking words. Strike where we see how the promise, how the offer, how this, this uh, hope offered unto us here in chapter 1 can be, can be ours because of him. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Isaiah is speaking there 700 years before the historical event to the cross, to Jesus' finished work on our behalf, They're hanging, dying on that cross. Back to Isaiah 1, verse 9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Oh, my goodness. You hear what he's he's, um, describing there? A state of, of helplessness, but not hopelessness. The distinction is very important. Helplessness, but not hopelessness. God would not abandon his people. Despite his people, he would not abandon his people. For his people, he would not abandon his people. He would leave a remnant. A remnant would be preserved. And through that remnant, who would come? He sang of him already. We celebrated his coming all this past month. The Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. And as we entrust ourselves to his finished work on our behalf, we can then know the delighted gaze of the Father. 
As we entrust ourselves to the finished work of the Son, we can know the delighted gaze of the Father. Again, verse 18. This is how he can make this offer. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. The darkest stain, now the purest white. So Christian, child of God, you've embraced that. You believe that to some degree, maybe just barely, about a few, you know, your fingernails, you're holding to it. How does the Father see you right this moment? Clothed in the robes of his Son. That's how he sees you. Now, it has nothing. You hear, of course, how could it have anything to do with us except how we've screwed up? That's been covered That's been covered. That's been dealt with. Clothed, robed with the righteousness of Jesus. This is the best of news, the gospel. As we trust ourselves to the finished work of the Son, we have the delighted gaze of the Father. And that's a radical message. The way um, John Newton, in that beautiful old hymn, put it, Once we were lost, now we are found. Once we were blind, now we can see because of what Jesus has done. The debt has been paid and paid in full. Because of what Jesus has done, God cannot love you any more now than he does already. You believe that? He cannot love you any more than he loves you now. And there's nothing you can do to undo that. Do you believe that? That's not news of resolution. That's news of renewal. That's of the stain coming out. Bleached out. No more. It's gone. It's, it's, it's gone. It's a radical message. It's so much so that when its wonder is, is allowed to shine, it's likely that we will be misunderstood. The freeness of it. Paul was. You go back and read his letters, what he has to deal with, the accusations that he has to deal with. We will be charged with licentiousness. We will be charged with just encouraging people to get off scot-free you crazy people. But that's the message. Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And there's nothing that can, can be, that we dare take away from that, and there's nothing that we dare add to it. Now, I don't know when we're finally going to get some snow around here. I hope it's soon. Um, but thinking of new fallen snow here just for a moment, and it's beauty, right? You know, is there, there are a few things that are more beautiful when you get up in the morning. I mean, unless you've got to go out to work. But a few, a few things more in your, your car covered and you've got to do the driveway. But, you know, if you don't have to go anywhere, it's Saturday. You don't have to go anywhere, and you're looking out the window. There's few things that are more beautiful than that pristine whiteness covering everything. 
Now, when does it start to get ugly? I know, we have to plow the roads. I know, we have to expose. I know we've got to add the chemicals and add the sand and add the dirt, but it's when we add our stuff to that pristine whiteness that it's, it's, it's just ugly. It's no longer, you see the parallel here? We're talking about adding to the message of the gospel our stuff, our dirt, our sand, our filth, thinking that's an improvement. You've destroyed it. You've destroyed it. This is a message that we dare not take anything away from. It is a message that we dare not add anything to. So Christian, just landing now, how do you begin again? Just practically speaking, how do you begin again? I don't know what the burden is on your heart. And if you need to talk to somebody about that, I'm, of course, I'd be glad to do that. But just you know, from 10,000 feet up, looking down, how do we begin again? It begins with this, remembering you're already new. Follower of Jesus, Christian, you are already new. You don't need to make yourself new. You're already new. There's nothing you need to do or can do to make yourself new because in Jesus, you are new. That's the first thing, which means that when you blow it, not if, but when, when you blow it, you are then free to own it, to confess fully and frankly and exhaustively all that you have done and why you did it privately to him and if need be, publicly to others, depending on what we're talking about. Know that you are new. Confess it. Own it. Speak it. Humbly then ask for his forgiveness and repent. Turn. Turn from that. Wrestle with what it was going on in your heart that enticed you, that pulled you, that dragged you into that thing into which you fell or ran. Turn from that and ask for his grace in the turning, in the turning, and then move on. Can I just say that? And just move on. Because it is finished. It really is. Just move on. All the while, hearing the Lord's invitation, right? 18, verse 18, invitation, come. It's in the con all this is in the context of that. His invitation to us, knowing it already, come. 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 Knowing that he has started over, brought renewal to so many, so, so many before you. 2 Samuel 11, David the man after God's own heart, an adulterer and a murderer, deceiver, come. The apostle Peter, in his boasting and cowardice and betrayal, come. You think he can't deal with what you've done. Oh, my friend, you are not so special. <laughs> you are loved. But your sin is not so special. Come. Let's pray. Lord, you alone make 
new beginnings. We confess that we want to make the new beginning ourselves so that we don't have to deal specifically with the sin, so that we don't actually have to repent, so that we don't have to humble ourselves before you and ask for forgiveness. There is a pride there. We pray that you would release us all from that. For the things that we are looking back upon now and the things that we will surely trip over later, we pray that you would uh, lay this reality, this message, this text heavily upon our hearts so that it would bring lightness and joy to our feet. And we would go. And we would go. We're about to end this service with a song. May we go forth with a song because of what you've said, because of what you've shown, because of what you've done. Pray in your name. Amen.